0: Our scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, and Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. I will be reading from the NIV version. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back. So he forgave their debts of both. Now which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one with the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. After this, Jesus traveled about from town one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own needs. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray together, friends. God and Father, as we turn now to your word, pray that you would be with all of us, though we're sinful people, that you might speak to us through it and be with me, though I am a sinful man, as I seek to proclaim it. Pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our calling as Christians is not to value people Based on the amount of their sin, but on their capacity to experience love. Our calling is to value people not on the amount of their sin, but on their capacity to experience love. Let me tell you this story. Jesus, at this point in Luke's gospel, is becoming a big deal. He has preached to thousands of people. He has cast out demons and healed with the word. And rumor is he's even raised the dead. And with John the Baptist now in prison, Jesus is kind of the only show in town and everyone in the nation is talking about him and everywhere he goes, people follows. And a Pharisee named Simon invites Jesus over for dinner. Now, two things you need to know about that statement. One is that Pharisees were the good guys in Israelite religion. They were the Bible-believing evangelical pastors. They were not the skeptics who were sold out to the government. That was the Sadducees. They were not the crazy kind of spiritual mystics. Those were like the Essenes and these other groups living in the desert. They were respectable and serious and devout people. And most people would have called Jesus a Pharisee. That's worth remembering in this story Because the thing is, if you spend any time with the Bible or just heard how people use the word, you know the Pharisees end up becoming the villain in many ways in this story and great enemies of Jesus's ministry. But we need to remember that, especially in this story, because at this point, as Jesus is just starting to become a public figure, the Pharisees don't really have an opinion about him yet. They're still trying to figure out who this Jesus guy is and which side that he is on. So he's invited to dinner. And then the other thing to keep in mind is that dinner in this world was a public affair if you were wealthy or influential. The dining room would be kind of visible to the street, often with this sort of rail or fence around it, and people, when um, important or famous figures were getting together to dine, people might actually kind of even congregate outside to watch and try to listen in. And so he's inviting him to dinner to figure out what Jesus is about, and also somewhat because here's this new kind of uh, religious celebrity and this is probably a chance for Simon to look good to the people of the town. And Jesus then accepts Simon's invitation. Now, we don't have to read as much into that as into Simon inviting him to dinner because Jesus in the Gospels eats with everybody. In Luke 5, he eats with a tax collector who the Pharisees would have despised here. He's eating with Simon the Pharisee. And all through his ministry, he just shares the table with anyone who's willing to. But they're having dinner. And just to have your mental image right, in the ancient world when you ate, Uh, It was not seated in a chair at a table, but rather there would be couches around this kind of lower table and you would lay facing the table and eat. Here's a picture. That picture is actually um, of a Greek meal, but the same thing would have been true of Israel at that time. And as a side note, I've always thought that was awesome. And if it didn't require buying a whole other set of furniture, like, you know, laying down while you eat actually sounds pretty appealing to me. But have that picture in your head. They're eating dinner. Uh, probably there's some other guests there too. And there's people kind of looking in from outside. And maybe Simon's quizzing Jesus about issues of the Torah or about politics. And then this happens. Picking up in verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment so a woman of the city who was a sinner the text does not spell out her sin but certainly that means it was something scandalous Many people historically assume that this means she was a prostitute. It might have been something else that brought her public disgrace, like uh, adultery. But regardless, this, this woman is known to everyone in the town as one of those people, a bad person. And she hears that Jesus is at Simon's house, and so she goes to see him. And even just going is a risk, Right? that 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 has some amount of cost because again this woman has faced public scandal so even if she's just standing outside looking in people are going to be looking at her and muttering and judging her but she goes much farther than just going to to catch a glimpse of jesus she goes to into him she has an alabaster flask full of perfume And we don't know exactly what that means or how big that was, but it's clearly very expensive. And some of the parallel accounts of this story tell us that it's worth almost a year's wages. She approaches Jesus. Maybe she sneaks through the house. Maybe she jumps the fence. We don't really know that. But she is um, becoming even more conspicuous, more visible to the crowd, even more vulnerable. And she comes up behind Jesus and she is weeping, And she wets his feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair and kisses them and anoints him with the perfume. All of that sounds strange to us, and it was a little less strange in the ancient world. Washing someone's feet was a common sign of service. Remember, you're walking around outside in sandals and it's dusty and dry, and Jesus washes his disciples' feet in order to give them a lesson about being a servant, and kissing someone's feet and anointing them with perfume were things that occasionally pop up in the ancient world as sort of signs of honor and respect to a king or someone very important. But, while it's not as alien in Jesus' world, it's still strange, and it's also kind of scandalous itself. For a woman to do this publicly to a man, especially in this very conservative, modest culture, this woman with her reputation kissing Jesus' feet and letting down her hair, which was a sign of immodesty. And, I mean, good parents are probably, like, covering their kids' eyes as this is happening in embarrassment. Even before we talk about the conversation that happens out of these events, it's worth already reflecting on something, just seeing these people at the table with Jesus. Too often in the church, in the name of Christianity... I think we have encouraged instead respectability. In the name of Christianity, we have encouraged respectability, a good, conservative, self-righteous cultural posture. And Jesus, in this story, as he affirms this woman, even just with the kind of strange scandal of what's happening here, is challenging that. I think I told this story once before. I remember as a teenager the church I was growing up in at this church service, this just stuck with me where I just kind of noticed during the service that there were two, two different visitors and one of them was this guy kind of wearing a nice suit that looked, you know, all dressed up for church and the other one was this kind of strung up, strung out, greasy haired guy sitting in the back in a heavy metal t-shirt and I remember noticing after the service that multiple people went up and introduced themselves to the respectable looking guy and nobody really approached the other guy and even at that age that bothered me. But that's not just some single story like that. It seems to me that one of the Bible verses that I have often heard quoted in the church, especially in how we talk to our children and younger people, is 1 Corinthians 15 33, where Paul says, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Now look, in the first place, that specific verse is probably not saying what people mean it to say at all. Uh, Paul's actually quoting this Greek comedy by Menander, and the point he's probably making is about associating with false teachers and having conversations that are denying the resurrection of the dead, which corrupt us. But sure, there is a broader sense in scripture where wisdom says that there is a sense in which bad company can lead to corrupt good morals. In 1 Corinthians 5, the book of Proverbs, it is true that we should let our core influences be people that will encourage us to move in the right direction. We should be thoughtful about who our core influences are. However, many people use that verse and use the idea that they are trying to express from it to instead say that we as Christians should separate from the world. We should create this Christian bubble, only have Christian friends, or at least good, righteous friends. We should avoid contact with non-Christians or with deeply sinful people for fear that they might corrupt us. And that is not what those verses are saying, and that is definitely not what we see modeled in Jesus. Instead, he models the opposite. Over and over in the Gospels, he eats and drinks with the worst kind of people. We already mentioned in Luke 5, tax collectors, but we're also told in the Gospels he hangs out with people termed sinners, prostitutes, and thieves. The Pharisees accuse Jesus of keeping bad company, and this is how Jesus responds. He says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." which is to say that while it's true that our core influences should be godly, Christ-following people that will spur us on towards love and good deeds, what's also true is that we should be keeping bad company in our lives because that's the example of Jesus. If all of your relationships are only with those good, moral, put-together people, you're actually failing to live like Jesus did. One other note about the company that we keep we focused kind of on that reality of hanging out with sinful people, bad influences. But another part of this story is that Jesus is crossing kind of cultural boundaries and lines. You can't really divorce the story from the gender of its main participants. In Jesus's world, men and women lived separated from each other and had very little to do with each other. And Jesus crosses that boundary as well. I think that's actually why immediately after this story, at the beginning of Luke 8 we were told uh, that the twelve were with Jesus, meaning the disciples, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. It is almost unheard of, in Jesus' words, to call out these women as deeply central to Jesus' ministry, but Luke does it. And the reason is because it's the pattern of Jesus's life. He does not follow society's rules about who you should associate with. Not just in terms of moral character, but in in other ways as well. And so here's the point that, that, that we need to recognize right up front. If you think about the sorts of people that Jesus spent time with, the diverse sorts of people that shared dinner with him, that sat down at his table, right? The Pharisee and the tax collector and the prostitute when you think about the ways that he crossed those cultural and moral boundaries, do the people that gather around your table look like that? Morally first, are there both believers and unbelievers, saints and sinners? Do you have that kind of diversity around your table? Would it make your neighbors raise their eyebrows? Would it make Simon the Pharisee uncomfortable? And then more broadly, culturally, Does your table reflect the diversity of people in our communities? I know that we're not in a society where men and women don't eat together, so it's not that specific thing maybe. But when you share your stories, or you look at how people are dressed, or how they look physically, what race they are, any of that, when you discuss cultural and political issues, does everyone agree with you about all of those things? Do they look like you and think like you? Because again, if that's the case... Then, then we failed to look like Jesus in the company we keep. Now, if you feel convicted by that, if you don't have that kind of diversity, don't despair, all right? I say that in a very confrontational way, but a lot of that is a product of how society has been structured. Don't despair, but here's my suggestion. Think about somebody around you who does not fit in that mold. Just find somebody and invite them over for dinner. Or in this COVID season, maybe invite them to come sit out on your porch or interact in some socially distanced way, but intentionally seek to, to just reach out to specific people so that you can have that kind of diverse fellowship that Jesus has. All right. With that said, that's all the setup for the story itself in many ways. Let's get back to it. Given this woman's reputation and her actions— Simon finds himself forming a certain opinion about Jesus in verse 39. He says, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now we need to be careful here. Again, we we know how the story ends, and so it's easy to judge Simon, but what he's thinking does make sense in his world, right? He's saying, Well, either one, Jesus does not know who this woman is. Because if he did, then he would stop her. But if he doesn't know, then he's not a prophet. Or two, he knows, but he's letting this kind of sinful, unclean woman uh, you know, kiss his feet and cause this public scandal. And surely a prophet wouldn't do that, right? We could think like that, I think. if We, we would think like that if we were in Simon's culture and in his place. And so then we need to hear Jesus' words as he speaks to Simon and, in a sense, to us. Jesus tells him a story. He says, a certain moneylender... Had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? So, first, a denarius is like a day's wages. So, in our world, let's say Jesus says one person owes $50,000, the other owes $5,000. Now, that's a lot of money, right? It's not like somebody only owes five bucks. But who does the money lender love more? Well, Simon knows the answer. although He's probably a little nervous, maybe seeing where this is going. But he says, the one who had the larger debt forgiven. And Jesus says, correct. And then he turns from Simon and looks at the woman instead. Because what he says next is as much for her as it is for him. Jesus says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from this time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So Simon contrasts, or Jesus contrasts Simon's actions with the woman's. He he points out that Simon didn't even do the baseline of being a generous, hospitable host, right? Giving someone water to wash their own feet, which again, this is a dusty place that they lived, greeting them with a kiss. I mean, the ancient world, kind of like, say, parts of Europe, that would be the way you would give an affectionate greeting. Um, Anointing head with olive oil. Olive oil is not crazy expensive like this perfume, but that was a way of showing honor to an honored guest. Simon didn't do any of those things, but not only did the woman, in essence, do those things, but she exceeded them. She did far more than you would ever expect from a hospitable host. And Jesus says that that points to this reality. He says, therefore, I tell you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. So, on one level, Jesus is showing here that he knows the same thing that Simon knows. He does understand this woman and her past. But he's also trying to challenge Simon. And to do that, we need to step back a little bit and make sure we're hearing what Jesus says correctly we need to be careful about how we talk about the amount of sin. So Simon has a view of the world where you can rank people in terms of how good and how bad they are, right? That, and he would certainly put himself in the category of I've sinned little and this woman in the category of having sinned much. And Jesus is entering into that way of thinking, but he's doing it in order to actually turn it on its head. I think that's why in verse 47, he does not say, you know, her sins which are many are forgiven, but your sins— Now, he just speaks in the abstract of the one who is forgiven little loves little. And the reason Jesus is challenging that is because ultimately he wants Simon's whole worldview to change. And the reason for that is that you have to understand, I think it's easy to miss when you just read this, what Jesus has actually just presented Simon with is this riddle, this contradiction with how he views the world. Here's the riddle. Simon the Pharisee knows that love is the ultimate fulfillment of the law. The Shema, the most famous part of the Jewish law that Simon had recited daily, proclaims, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So righteousness is ultimately love for God. God is clearly the moneylender in this story. He's the one doing the forgiving, which means that the love that someone is going to have for God is the direct result of them having a great debt and being forgiven much. Jesus is saying, Simon, what does it mean if the terrible sinner is actually more able to love God than you? Doesn't that mean that in a real sense this woman here is a better Jew, a better follower of the Lord than you are? That your lifelong work to to be disciplined and to to show yourself as not very much of a sinner, the self-righteousness you've cultivated, that actually has kept you from the thing that would make you truly righteous. The point Jesus is trying to make is that there is a contradiction between the way that Simon wants to rank people in terms of their sin and what Simon knows to be true in terms of God's character and our call to love him. Only when he understands that contradiction and abandons the idea that he is better than this woman can he actually become forgiven and righteous like her. Which takes us back to what we said at the beginning. Our calling as Christians is to value people not based on the amount of their sin, but on their capacity to experience love. That is what Jesus wants Simon to understand. We tend to treat people as more valuable the less they need. I think that's just true if we're honest in our hearts, that people who are needy and a mess and struggling in a lot of ways, we tend to view them as um, as, as not very valuable. And people who are put together and don't really need us for anything, we view those people as valuable. And we do that, um, but... Jesus would remind us that there's a sense in which he's trying to say, actually those people are the people with the least potential to experience love. In scripture, our love is always measured by our need for God. And our love for others is always measured by our experience of God's love for us. Or to put this another way, Jesus is saying that we tend to view people as pits, and instead we need to view people as wells. Which is to say, a pit right an empty hole in the ground we kind of want pits to be shallow to, to, to not have very much need to, to not take very much to fill them in because if they're shallow then if we fall into them it's not going to hurt very much and if we have to fill them in then that's not really that much work and, and and because of that when we view people like that as pits we like the shallowest possible pits that need the least to fill them in because we feel like it's our job to fill them up but That, of course, is the problem, with part of the problem with what Jesus is saying, right? It isn't our job to fill people up. It's our job to help people to experience God's love. But if that's true, then that means that if if, if what we want is to bring people to a place where they experience God's love and he pours his love into them, then that means that, that people aren't like those pits. Actually, the way that people need to be viewed is as wells. The deepest well that takes the most to fill it up is, in a sense, the best well. Because it has the most water in it. It has the most love that can be drawn forth from it. So part of what Jesus wants to ask you is whether you view people that way. That when someone is struggling or sinful or deeply broken, do we look at them and think, man, I just don't want to deal with that. And look, I will say, if you have that feeling, one of the things that that probably shows is that you're trying to meet all that person's needs, which you can't do, right? Our calling, again, is to help them to experience God's love. But when you look at that person, do you think that way? Or do you imagine the incredible person that they can be as they experience and are filled up with the love of God? How much more valuable and how much more delighted in him they will be and how much more they have to offer the world, in a sense, because of their need. That is how Jesus is calling us to view other people. And that is how Jesus is calling us to view ourselves. Finish up the story with me. Pick up in verse 48. Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So Jesus forgives the woman's sins. And how did the Pharisees react? Well, what they immediately look at is a theological problem. And it's a real fair question they're asking. Only God can forgive sins in Scripture. For Jesus to declare this is pretty remarkable. It's not that the question is incorrect exactly, but notice it is not the question of the woman. She doesn't even speak in this story, right? Her actions are speak for her, but she has sinned in pr- profound ways, and it is clear that her question is, how can I be forgiven? Can I be accepted? Can I know and be loved by God? That is the hope that she sees in Jesus that drives her to do all of this. So the thing is, in this story, right, the woman is looking at her sin, The Pharisees look at each other with this kind of abstract question in response. And as a result, the woman looks at Jesus while the Pharisees keep looking at each other. And as a result of that, the woman, rather than they, are the one who has Jesus say to them, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace. In this story, we're supposed to recognize That both groups, in a sense, can be us. That's actually true of a lot of stories. Simon and the Pharisees are a warning to us of what we can be. Especially as religious people, as church people, we are in danger of having hearts like the Pharisees. Hearts that think we are better than others, and hearts that therefore don't recognize our need for forgiveness, and so never experience it. Simon is a warning. This woman is an invitation. She is who we can be if we will simply abandon Simon's place of self-righteousness and cast ourselves on the grace of God. Friend, you are far worse than you like to pretend. Maybe not in obvious ways, but in deep and profound ones. We mess up the people we interact with through silence, setting impossible standards, judgmentalism, selfishness, And I often reflect that as a parent, even though I try my best, there are still, I'm sure, going to be plenty of things for my kids to talk to their therapists about someday. And they're probably real failures. We envy, we lust, we gossip, we are proud, we are impatient we are ungrateful, we are not as prayerful as we should be, not as in awe of God as he deserves, we get angry with people, we make much of the faults of others while minimizing our own, and I could go on and on. It is not hard to name a hundred ways by God's perfect holiness that we are deeply sinful. I hear people sometimes um, in the church complain about their testimonies. A testimony is like the story that you tell of how you came to know Jesus, And these people, maybe they were saved at a young age or don't remember even a time that they didn't know Jesus, or maybe it was later, but they were still kind of well-behaved, respectable people up until the point where they were saved. And these people complain and say, man, I wish I had one of those testimonies where the person, you know, did drugs and was in prison and then the Lord came and saved them. I wish that I had done really bad stuff and then Jesus had saved me. Now I get why they feel that way. But I always want to say, two things when people say that one I want to say no you don't like if you ask anyone who's actually experienced the pain and brokenness of those kinds of choices like they all envy you but more than that I want to say isn't that your testimony too I mean we have all done deeply evil things both before and after we met Jesus Christ he has saved us from our sins just as much as anyone else's now sure maybe our sins were more like Simon's more respectable, easier to dress up and make look okay and hide from the world. But that does not make us any better than anyone else. We are far worse than we like to protect. How do you respond in your heart to that truth? Do you try to minimize it, to deny it, to say, well, no, come on, I'm not that bad. Everybody does the things that I do. I'm not like those people. Or do you treat those sins like this woman? Do you let them overwhelm you and then come tearful to Jesus Christ seeking his forgiveness? Because the beautiful truth of this story is that the woman is the one who is forgiven. She's the one who experiences it. God does not declare forgiveness for the righteous Pharisees, right? Jesus says, All all is forgiven, every bit of it, every sin you committed, the ones you're struggling with right now, the ones you will struggle with in the future, that I love you and I'm welcoming you. You are far worse than you like to pretend. But God's love is far greater than you can imagine, and He shows it to the greatest of sinners. We're to come back to what we said. Our calling as Christians is to value people based not on the amount of their sin but on their ex- capacity to experience love and that is true of how we value other people but it is also supposed to be true about what we value in ourselves. Do you realize that that is how God views you and how you are called to view yourself? God does not value you based on what you've done or or what you failed to do, or what you still struggle with. We so often fall into the trap of thinking that he does. We think that before we can really experience God, before we can really know him, before we can really be a part of his people on his mission, that we have to reach this certain level of righteousness, that we have to beat these certain struggles with sin. And that is viewing yourself as a pit. You think that God doesn't want you to need him very much, that you've got to kind of fill yourself up so that there's not much need there, and then he will accept you. God does not love you because you do not need him. He loves you because you do need him. He loves you precisely because you can't fill yourself up, can't clean yourself up, can't solve the struggles that you have. And that is because you, therefore, have a deep capacity to experience his love. If we will only open ourselves up to it and admit our need God will gladly fill us with his love. He will gladly do it. And as he does, we will find our hearts like the sinful woman's changed. And we will hear him declare over us that we are forgiven and our faith has saved us. If you have not experienced that, today you are invited to. If you are not experiencing that right now in your life, even if maybe you feel like you have in the past, that's still how God speaks to and views you today. And the thing you need to realize is that it is by doing that, by admitting your need and letting God's love fill you up, that you can do the other things we talked about in this story. I mean, why why is it that we are called to freely associate with all kinds of people, saints and sinners, Um, you know, people like us and people not like us, it is because we realize that we are no different, no better than anyone else. Sitting down at the table with the worst sinner is sitting down at the table with someone just like you. Why do we value other people based on their need? And why do we seek to love broken, sinful people? Because that is what God has done to us. He fills the pit in our heart. He turns us into a well. And so we can look at others and seek to help them experience God's love poured into them as well. That is the invitation for us today. Come to Jesus like this woman with all your sin and brokenness. Come to him and experience his love and then pour that love out from yourself into the world. Let's pray. Oh, Father, when I reflect on the attitude of Jesus, I am convicted both in myself and in your church with how often we have failed to done that. Lord, it breaks my heart that so often your church is known for the opposite. It's known for being the place where you're not supposed to go if you're like this woman. Father, I confess that that is a grievous sin. I pray that you would break us of it and turn us from it and convict us of it. And Father, I pray that knowing that you will. Lord, you love us and offer us forgiveness. I give thanks for the grace that you have shown me in Jesus Christ, that you have shown each one of us. I pray that 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 love might fill us up and so overflow to the watching world. I pray that you would make us a place that is a hospital for the sin sick, that welcomes all kinds of people, that rejoices in their differences even as it challenges us. I pray that we might, around our tables, gather people like Jesus did and so the world might see the grace that he offers and so might be changed. Pray this all in his name. Amen.